if you could turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, um, we are in the book of Acts still, the theme Acts Unstoppable, um, kind of the title of the book, as, as I have stolen from someone else and repurposed from my own, uh, the Unstoppable Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus Christ as he continues his work to seek and save sinners through the church's witness by the power of the Holy Spirit and according to the eternal kingdom plan of God the Father. And you see, today's message is the gospel to the unlikely. Acts chapter 8, the gospel to the unlikely. Um, Let's jump over to the next slide here real quick, Tate. Um, We're going to play a quick game here as we get ready. We're going to read through the whole passage and we're going to play this game I like to call Believer, unbeliever, or make-believer. All right, so we're going to read through the passage, and you are going to assess the spiritual condition of the person that uh, takes the primary place here. His name is Simon, and you want to determine, is this man a believer, an unbeliever, or a make-believer? Let's define our terms. What does it mean to be a believer? Matthew Carr. Uh, you were the only one looking at me. So. <laughs> uh, some put their faith in Jesus for salvation. Yes. All right. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. You turn away from your sins and you turn towards Jesus Christ. You repent. You see the fruit of repentance in your life. Um, all these kinds of things. What about a unbeliever? What is an unbeliever? Anybody? Anybody? Yes? The opposite. What he said. The opposite. <laughs> you reject Jesus Christ as Lord. You refuse to repent of your sin. And the fruit of faith is not evident in your life. What about a make-believer? This is the tricky one, right? The make-believer. What is a make-believer? Anybody but Ethan Jones? Uh, Imani? Um, somebody who fakes being a believer. Fakes? Oh, that's even a better name. A fake believer, uh, but make believers. Kind of. What, what were you going to say? Uh, somebody who plays like they are. A yeah. Believer. They're in the church. They're doing stuff, but they're not really safe. Right. They are trying to pretend to be a believer. Yes. A fake believer. Yes. What do you got? Someone who claims to be a Christian but Some, does not bear any fruit. Someone who claims to be a Christian but does not bear any fruit. So we've got a claimer. A namer and a denier, right? Maybe we could say it like that. I just came up with that right now out of my head, right now. I think if I was Ethan Campbell, though, it would have been more brilliant. But Okay, so we're going to read Acts 8, 1, all the way through 25. And you evaluate the spiritual condition of the man that we will learn about in this passage. Not Saul, but Simon. All right, so Acts 1. And Saul approved of his execution. You remember Uh, Stephen was just in Acts 7. He got executed for being a believer in Jesus Christ. We see here Paul is approving of that execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who 
who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God, and the name of the Lord Jesus, or the Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles he performed, uh, seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, They sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, For your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Um, Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this passage, and we pray that you would use it to really shape and and transform our thinking um, in regards to faith and how we should respond to your saving grace and and those around us, even in the unlikely ones around us. We pray that we would have hearts and minds ready to learn and grow and change today. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the game. Believer, unbeliever, or make-believer, Turn to the friend or enemy on your left or on your right and, and give your vote. Cast your vote. You, you no, know, you don't have to do it like that. But uh, just quick, quickly just discuss among yourself. Debate, debate, num, num, uh, debate num, um, one another. Oh, my word. And I'll get back to you in a second. All right. Two minutes. Go for it. All right. Okay. Real quick. Uh, real quick. What? Uh, what do you guys think? What do you guys think? Anybody dare to vote? What do you say? What was that? Make believer. Oh, so ungenerous. All right. All right. Anybody else? Anybody else? Did anybody vote any other way? You're all saying make believer. Yeah. What did you say? What did you say? What did you? Maybe a believer. Okay. No. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's kind of they're like by the end there maybe, 
a little bit something. I mean, I don't know about leading up to the end, but definitely by the end, something seems to be happening there, right? In verse uh, 24, so that seems kind of promising, right? What, what are we going to say? Uh, make believer turned believer. Make believer turned believer. Okay, so here we go. Here we, now we're getting into the the intricacies of the character of Simon. What were you going to say? I was going to say make believer. Make believer. So he tried to uh, receive signs uh, with money. Okay, so he he uh, he was trying to buy the spirit of God with money. So make believer. So he thought he was a believer. Okay, what were you going to say? I would say make believer because when Peter exposed him, uh, saying that he wasn't actually repenting towards God. He didn't actually repent in his reply to Peter. He okay. just said, pray that this isn't true. He okay. actually gave glory to God. Interesting, yeah, verse 24. I mean, people use it to go either way on whether he was a believer. And it's kind of curious what he doesn't do in verse 24, isn't it? Uh, yes, Tate? But at the same time, it says in verse 13, even Simon himself believed. Yeah. But. So there's belief. The same word that's used, same word that's used of the Samaritans. Um, that's that's the really crazy part, right? Uh, what, what do we say? Um, uh, but when they believed, Philip, verse 12, and then verse 13, same word, Simon himself believed. The word himself is emphatic. It's like Luke is surprised even writing it. So what's going on there, huh? What do you got? But it doesn't say he repented. It just says he believed in Yeah, wow, well, come on now. But, See, but, but, but look at uh, ch- uh, chapter 2, right? The, they, they believed too. It doesn't say anything. Oh, never mind. Okay, never mind. I, I didn't say that. I, I don't have a proof text for that, actually. Yes, what? I can make the argument that it was intentionally vague. Intentionally vague. Okay, we'll hold, hold that. Put a pin in that. Put a pin in that. We'll come right back. Uh, anybody else? Anybody else? No, nobody else? All right. Okay, let's, uh, let's kind of work our way towards it, and I'll kind of give you my my interpretation of how we should understand this passage. But I, I want to just present the whole entire chapter to you as how you should respond to God's sovereign grace. Let's say people are getting saved in our group. How should we respond when God's grace saves people in our group? How should we think about God's work? Especially when God is saving someone maybe that we don't like or that we would see as maybe unlikely of being saved. How should we think about God working and saving people. Um, Or, if you turn to the next slide, uh, let's uh, work on preparing uh, our heart to respond to God's sovereign grace in others. All those words spelled correctly, right? Come on. Sovereign always screws me up, but I think I spelled that even right. Okay, so preparing your hearts to respond to God's sovereign grace in others. Let's uh, just kind of go through a few points here on how we can Uh, respond rightly to God's sovereign grace. Um, Number one, have an uncommon perspective. Have an uncommon perspective. You see there in uh, the first four verses, we we kind of are kind of just jumping on to the end of our story from last week, which was Saul beginning a persecution on Jerusalem. And this is really kind of what outlines that, but this is a response to Stephen's testimony. And we see there in verse one, even that Saul approved of his execution. That's a word that means he was in agreement to. Um, He was pleased with the out come um he would clearly be uh separating here from his master gamaliel who we saw in chapter six or chapter five was saying hey don't do anything about this jesus movement let's just let it peter out if it's going to peter out but we don't want to be opposing god but but saul who was his disciple as we see later on in acts was vehemently opposed to Christianity. He was like, we need to stop it now, and we need to stop it dramatically before it spreads any 
more. Matter of fact, Saul could have been one of those Cilicians. That's right. They were Cilicians in chapter 6 who originally uh, opposed Stephen um, from Asia, Alexandrians and Cilicians and Asia. They rose up against Stephen because he was from around there. So actually, he might have been one of those people that was originally trying to take down Stephen. So this would make sense that he's jumping on Stephen's execution and trying to uh, root out all Christianity. Um, essentially, he becomes enemy number one of the church, and you can read that even there from those words. You see in verse 3, he goes ravaging the church, entering house after house. This is a word that uh, can refer to a, a vicious animal ripping and tearing and destroying. Paul is described here in language like a wild beast, and you notice even women are unsafe from his, his exploits and attempts here to destroy the work of Jesus Christ. But despite his opposition, what do we see happening? We see exactly the opposite happening. We see Acts 1.8 happening. Remember, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses and you will receive power and you will witness um, through the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Actually, this is leading to Jesus' plan. And we see here Jesus is completely sovereign, even in trial, even with the church enemy number one coming against the church. Jesus is in complete control. A matter of fact, if we could borrow the, the language from Genesis 50, you meant it for evil. But Jesus meant it for good, right? This is causing the gospel to spread. And so you can, you can apply a little side lesson there. Regardless of where you land, regardless of what trouble you end up in because you follow Jesus, it is never random or it's never outside of Jesus' control. It's always in Jesus' control. We see something about devout men burying Stephen. All of this happens. But the, the main thing I want you to see here is the uncommon perspective of the church. The uncommon perspective of the church. They are being hunted like animals, house to house. They are being hunted by an animal, house to house. But what happens? Verse 4, they are scattered. And what do they do when they're scattered? Do they go into hiding? No, they, they are scattered, verse 4, preaching the word. That's a remarkable thing. If you just got scattered for the gospel of Jesus Christ, would you be running through Tehachapi? Would you be running through Santa Clarita? Would you be running through Fresno? I'm trying to think of any other names spreading the good news of Jesus. I don't know if that's exactly what we would expect to happen, right? Right? No, you'd be hiding, hoping nobody knew you were a Christian. At least, that's how you would do it naturally. The word there, preaching the word, it doesn't necessarily refer to sermons. It means proclaiming, announcing. It could be used for just spreading the word of something like that. But whatever it is, it's, it's announcing something important, something spectacular. It was used in the ancient world to announce that the empire had, uh, emperor had a son. Good news, good news, the emperor has a son. It's basically the word euangelion, which is good news. You're being scattered for the gospel, and as you're scattering, you can't help but spread the rumors of the good news of Jesus. This is a very uncommon perspective. A very uncommon perspective, is it not? This is not how you naturally respond. 
Matter of fact, but look at but look at the look at the church though. They had this concept about being connected to Jesus Christ that anything and everything that happened to them because they were a Christian was an uncommon grace. It was it was a part of it was a part of being connected to Jesus that they did not deserve. They had the privilege of suffering for Jesus. And notice they had the privilege, every single one of them, men and women, all of them saw themselves as recipients of the privilege of being called a Christian. So that's why they could spread like that. Verse 4, preaching the good news. How do you, how do you prepare for this? I mean, this is, this is not really getting into our question, but this is kind of like just setting up kind of the story. But, but notice, the only way you can have this uncommon perspective is to prepare your mind and heart right now through how you think about the gospel and, and praying, praying about the gospel. Lord, imprint the, the privilege of my position in Christ deeply on my heart and mind so when trouble happens when evil happens to me what comes out is good news this is good news i don't deserve to suffer for jesus i don't deserve to be an ambassador of jesus i don't don't deserve to share the good news of jesus with anybody i don't deserve this at all but this was their uncommon perspective but let's return back to our our main idea which is kind of just evaluating how should we respond to new uh, salvations that God is working. Let's move to our next point. Believe, believe in God's power to save. Have an uncommon perspective, yes, but believe in God's power to save. Verse 5 introduces us to this man called Philip, who we actually have met in chapter 6. He was one of those seven called to serve tables who were just extraordinary men. And he brings the gospel to the Samaritans. Now, let me just give you a little bit of background information on the Samaritans. There, were, there was no people more hated by the Jews than the Samaritans. And there, were, were no, there was no people more hated by the Samaritans than the Jews. They hated one another. They were, they were deeply opposed to one another in every uh, every form. There was, matter of fact, a growing and deepening divide and wall that was constantly being nurtured and cherished between the two of them. They hated one another. And we see this all throughout their history. And even, even the land of Samaria kind of has this uh, opposition to Jerusalem. Um, back in the day, when the, in the golden days of the United Empire, that's the the, the kingdom under Solomon and David. During even those great days, there was this divide that you already begin to see between the northern tribes and the southern tribes. And you see this in Second Samuel when you, you hear like um, how they're referred to, like the men of Judah and the men of Israel. Like they're already kind of seen as distinct groups. There was this division. It's kind of like the north and the south are today, right? There's kind of like this division that, that grew into a civil war. Um, and then in the 10th century, that's the 10th century before Christ, 10 tribes split and they form a rival capital city in Samaria called Samaria. Um, that obviously is a part of the Samaritans' history, even though it's a different people. In 722 BC, it's before Christ, uh, when the Assyrians sacked and scattered northern Israel, they spread them all throughout their empire. So that's kind of where the, the original Samaritans went. Um, but in, 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 instead of 
instead of letting them come back like the Babylonians let the, the, the southern um, Jews do, the Assyrians did this other tactic to really destroy the hopes of a people. They not only scattered them all throughout their land, they also brought in other people and scattered them in the old houses that the, the people had. So these were people that were pulled in from all over the world, of the conquered world of the Assyrians, and then they intermarried with, with Jews, and so they were particularly hated. In the 4th century, during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, these were the people that continually sought to stop the temple and the building of the wall, so they were enemies. Um, they, in fact, made a rival temple at a rival mountain, and they had a rival law that they followed and they, they, they pursued and they hoped in a rival Messiah. They had everything that uh, the Jerusalem Jews had, but in rival form and slightly changed to sound like it was for them. They were just the rivals. They were continually forbidding one another from participating in the other's religious practice. So if you were a Samaritan, you didn't go to Jerusalem and worship. You couldn't because they didn't let you. And if you were, some, if you were a, a Galilean or from Judea, you couldn't go up to Galilee. Uh, to Samaria and worship, you were forbidden. They, they saw the other as impostors on the promises of God. And then we get into the inter- intertestamental period where it gets interesting as well. In 128 B.C., um, a Maccabean named John defeated the Samaritans and actually destroyed their temple. And then in 6 A.D., some Samaritans returned the favor by spreading human bones all over the temple compound in Jerusalem. These people hated one another. As a matter of fact, in the days of Jesus, we see evidence that it was dangerous for a Galilean to even go through Samaria. They would, they would, they would tend to go around because it was, it was dangerous to them. People could get killed. As a matter of fact, John says in 4.9, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. That's kind of a, a, an understatement on John's part, I suppose. But the, the basic relationship of these two people was... They absolutely hated one another. If there was one people group that was unlikely to be saved in the Jewish mind, it would probably be the Samaritans. Right up there, yes, with the Gentiles, but the Samaritans were just just bad. Not only were they they outside of the blessing of God, they, they, they twisted the things of God to make it their own. There was a deep divide. These were people that were unsavable. These, these were people that had the spiritual deck, you could say, stacked against them. There's no way God would save the Samaritans. But this is where it gets so interesting here in in Acts 8 to me, because look at what Philip does. And, And notice also how the Samaritans respond. Verse 6, they paid attention with one accord to the things that were being said by Philip. And then you see, in verse 8, they believed, and there was much joy in the city. There's two amazing facts here. Uh, the, the fact number one is that Philip believed what in God's power to save. And the other amazing truth and fact here is that the Samaritans believed and heard him gladly. This was unexpected. Uh, Philip was eager to proclaim to them. The, the word there, proclaimed, means to make a bold and official and public announcement. And then in verse 6, they paid attention. They were alert to. They were attentive to. They were ready to listen. They were eager to listen. That's not something you do, usually. There was something incredible going on here. Something incredible that was clearly outside of normal, normal behavior. Jesus was at work gathering in more people 
to be saved. I love the I love the verse there in verse eight. Right, there was much joy in the city. A huge word in Luke. Actually, it's a huge word in the Gospel of Luke. You see joy all over the t- place, and here is the first time that it occurs in the book of Acts. Joy. And we're reminded of Luke 2, verse 10, that the angels shouted in the heavens when the Lord Jesus was born himself. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. This the, the message of Jesus is good news of great joy. And here we're seeing an evidence of that, right? When the news of Jesus comes into a city, there is great joy. When the news of Jesus comes into your life, there is great joy. That is the result. And the gospel is joy to all people. It's not the good news to the good enough. It's not the good news to those people that are doing really well. It's not the good news to the likely. It's the good news to the lost, to those people that have nothing to offer to God spiritually. It is good news. It is good news to those who have the spiritual deck, so to speak, stacked against them, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ comes to them. Do you believe in the power of Jesus to save? He can save anyone. That is the power of Jesus, even those that you would not maybe choose, the really bad ones. Let's move on to the next one. This leads us to our next point. You can't, I can't escape. Um, I can't escape this. This is very interesting to me. This whole chapter is interesting to me because I, I, that question that we have been asking ourselves, I was asking myself all week. And, 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 and I can't escape a few observations here. Let's move to the next point here in how we should prepare our hearts to respond to sovereign grace. We should believe in God's power to save, but we should also seek a generous spirit. Seek a generous spirit. We should believe, but we should also be generous with those whom God chooses to save. I don't think this... I don't think it means that you should just, hey, if somebody says they're a believer, you should just automatically believe them and then they're a believer regardless of what happens in their life. But you should have a generous spirit about you. Man, God can save anyone. So I believe that he can actually save you. That's what it means to have a generous spirit. And this is where it gets interesting because this is where in verse 9 we're introduced to this man named Simon. Uh, Simon, as you remember, had considerable influence over the Samaritans two times. Two times. Um, It is recorded that people paid attention to him. And notice they also paid attention to uh, Philip before this. But before they paid attention to Philip, they paid attention two times, it's told, uh, to Simon because he did these impressive and powerful signs. And they even saw him, you see there in verse 10, possessing like the very power of God as though he was on the same level as God. He had incredible power, incredible influence. They paid attention to Simon. But we notice here, it's very surprising, when Philip comes and begins to preach, uh, and they're all believing, they're baptized men and women, and, and we should notice something about this. And just jumping back to kind of the, the Samaritans for a moment, notice Philip's generous spirit. He baptizes them, he starts to instruct them, to teach them most likely. He believed in God, and he did not, he did not look down on them. He believed in them, and then we see in verse 13, when we get to Simon, even Simon himself believed. This is surprising. This is unexpected. We're not, we're not thinking even Simon can believe. We're kind of thinking he's one of those unsavable, unlikely individuals. But he becomes dramatically 
uh, devoted to Philip. Did you notice there the dramatic fruit of his, quote, salvation? He continued with Philip, it tells, tells us in verse 13, continued. This is a, a word to speak of like Velcro or attached yourself to or to stick yourself very close to. It's, it's not really used for, for, for like discipleship. It's an uncommon word to refer to this kind of relationship. So we get this sense that that Simon is an extraordinary disciple. He is more devoted than everybody else. He seems to be one of the best. It seems from the sight of it that he is one of, uh, he's, he's showing the greatest signs of being a disciple. But then we see something else there in verse 13. We see this hint in seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. It makes us a little bit nervous. Like, hey, that seems like really good, but also there's something, there's just something off here. But notice how the whole Samaritan situation was responded to first by Philip and then by the Jerusalem church. It was responded to with a generous spirit. Even Simon was given a generous spirit. God can truly save anyone. And we we don't want to say this one is unsavable, but they had a generous spirit. We see in verse 14, the apostles at Jerusalem heard that the that Samaria had received the word of God, and they sent who? They sent Peter and John. They didn't send those other apostles that we never talk about. They never sent apostles number 11 and 12. They sent the top guys. They sent Peter and John. They, because they had confidence in God's saving grace. They knew that God could save anyone And they had heard that the Samaritans had received the word of God, and they were eager to see it for themselves. Um, Such a spirit, such a generous spirit, can only come when you have an imagination of faith, can only come when you believe that God has true power to transform someone. Um, Such a generous spirit can can believe that God can save Samaritans, uh, even those like Simon who have the spiritual deck stacked against them. Uh, it's very interesting that they don't send secondary apostles either. They, they give them the best of the best. Uh, what Galatians 2.9 would say are the pillars of the church. Um, and this is just amazing. It really shows you kind of how, how God transforms people. John was one of the disciples who, who when uh, Jesus and the disciples were walking through Samaria, uh, Samaria, was like, Hey, Jesus, these people are rejecting you. Can, can I cast down fire on them? That, that was John. Right? What a, what a transformation that the grace of Jesus Christ has made in the character of John. Now he and Peter are going to testify to the truth of the gospel. And we see there also lay hands on these people to see uh, that they receive the Holy Spirit. A little side note, by the way. Why did they need to lay hands on the Samaritans? Why, why, do, we, why do we see this happen? Is this what has to happen every time? Do we need an apostle to lay hands on us to to enable us to receive the Spirit? Well, remember, remember from Acts two that we've seen that Luke doesn't always follow the exact order the same way. Sometimes the Spirit comes in one way and another way, and usually he's doing this because Jesus Christ wants to emphasize to us uh, some theological truths. Uh, we should look for the norm from Acts two thirty eight through thirty nine. Those who re- Repent, believe, put their faith in Jesus Christ, receive the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit instantly. Um, 
and they don't need any secondary experience. Matter of fact, we see in chapter 10, verse 47, that sometimes this, the Spirit comes before baptism and all these kinds of things, and, and that indicates the truth of it, that when you are baptized, it's because you have already been baptized spiritually into Jesus, and you're testifying to the truth of that. Um, so wh- what's going on here? Well, a few conclusions. It's not that Philip's message was inadequate. It's not that the Spirit of God was confused or reluctant. It's not that something special was in the apostles' hands. Once again, Acts 2 doesn't mention the apostles' hands. Acts 9.17, Paul himself receives the gift of the Holy Spirit with a non-apostle's hands. So it's not, not necessarily that there's something special in the apostles' hands. Here's what I think is happening. Jesus is intentionally withholding Uh, the Spirit from the Samaritans so that he can show the Jews and the Samaritans that you are unified in Christ, right? If the Samaritans had received the gift of the Spirit outside of Jerusalem, there would have been this continual schism, right? But because they were forced to be united and, and they were forced to put themselves under the apostles' teaching, there was this unity that came in the church. That's why it was happening. But let's, let's go back to Acts uh, 8 here. This brings us right back to the Simon question. Number four. Number four. Um, we'll wait on number four for a second. Uh, so exciting, David. You're so exciting. Um, we see how Simon responds. Verse 18. Instantly, when he sees the power that is in... The apostles' hands, he offers them money. This is his knee-jerk go-to reaction. And this is one of the clues about who Simon is, right? When he sees power, when he sees ability to somehow give someone the Holy Spirit, he gets roaringly envious and seeks to buy that power from Peter. Essentially, his old man just comes out. He had been kind of showing himself to look like a believer, but in a certain moment of exact temptation, the old man comes out. Uh, He was eager to find a way to have power so that he could have influence over the Samaritans again. By the way, the term simony comes from this individual. It is somebody who tries to buy up religious privilege with money, Um, For example, in 1487, a pope sold 24 offices for money. That's called simony. And we get it from this individual trying to buy up religious privilege uh, with money. Uh, But what should your response be to a person who has believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, evidenced a few few initial fruits of salvation, and then commits a grievous sin like this, what should your response be? This is where it gets very interesting. Should you say, A, I knew it. I knew it all the time. You are hopeless. I knew you would fall. I knew you would fail. You were unsavable. Or, should you respond like Peter did? Notice how Peter responds. It's not, oh, it doesn't matter, Simon. Certainly not, oh, here you go, Simon. I'll give you this gift. No, it is serious warning. And this is instructive to us when we find somebody in sin. 
You are presently in serious spiritual danger. That is how Simon responds. You see that in verses 20 all the way through 23. I'll read Peter's speech. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven of you for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Notice, notice he uses a ton of phrases to explain the spiritual condition of Simon. Let's go through them really quick. First off, he says, this is going to send you to hell. Did you see that in verse 20? May your silver perish with you. Uh, what you are doing right here, right now will send you to destruction. There is a suggestion here in the tense of the verb that he is warning. You're going to hell with your silver if you do not take care right now, Simon. There's a present tense of this verb as well, right? This is your current situation. You are currently going to hell right now, Simon, unless you take care. Uh, Number two, what does he say to him? He says, you are deceived about grace. You're offering silver, it says in verse 20, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. The sin that Simon was committing was not that he was holding money in his hand or possessed money. The sin that Simon was committing was that he thought he could buy a free gift from God with money. He thought he could, as we could could apply it to today, work for the gift of God. Earn the gift of God. Earn the gift of the Spirit. And the truth is, you can't obtain the gift of God. It's a gift. You're not supposed to work for it. But that very belief in being deceived about the grace of God, could doom you forever. You have to come to Jesus empty-handed, right? You have to come to Jesus with nothing. Matter of fact, that's the very next thing he says. You are impoverished before God. So we say, we see this, this is going to send you to hell. Number two, you are deceived about grace. Number three, you are impoverished before God. Verse 21 says this, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. These are two terms that refer to a land possession or an inheritance. And then Simon is, or Peter is saying here, you have neither, you have neither part or lot in God. The possessions of God evidently do not belong to you. You are impoverished spiritually. You don't have anything spiritually before God. And isn't that interesting? That is exactly what you need to believe about yourself to receive the gospel. You first need to say, I have nothing to offer to God spiritually. I, have, I am impoverished spiritually in order to receive the free gift of God's grace. And that's what Peter says to Simon as well. Number four, your heart is crooked before God. He says in verse 21, your heart is not right before God. Your heart is crooked, twisted. It's morally uh, wrong. And it's plain in God's sight. In verse 22, this wickedness that is yours. Not only do you not possess the things of God, but you possess instead wickedness, abundant wickedness before God. 
then believing the gospel is, means this, right? It means you have nothing to offer to God spiritually, and it also means you recognize that the things that you do possess are evil and wicked before God. My sin is wicked in God's sight. That's what it means to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. N- number five, the thing that Peter says to Simon here, you are ruled by envy and jealousy. You see there in verse 22, you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. These are funny little phrases. Gall means something bitter, um, um, unedible. It's a Jewish idiom or an expression to, to refer to someone who is just ruled by a bitter and envious spirit. And that's, that's who Simon was, right? He was envious of the power that Philip had. He was envious of the power that Peter had and the apostles had. He was envious of it. And that's what led to this fruit coming out in his life. His heart was revealed, right? This is what John MacArthur says, right? Time and truth go hand in hand. The truth about you will come out eventually. The envy that you think is so hidden in your heart will be revealed eventually. He was deeply jealous and envious. And then the next thing is, he, Peter says to Simon, you are a captive to sin. You are in the bond of iniquity. You are bound. You are in chains. Now, this is Simon's spiritual condition. He is a captive, he is ruled by envy, he is crooked before God, he possesses nothing, he's deceived, he's going to hell. He is an unbeliever. Perhaps he's someone that thinks he was a believer, but the fruit of his life is coming out very plainly right now. You are an unbeliever. He seems to be self-deceived as well, so I would say an unbeliever more than a make-believer. And what should we do to people like this when the fruit of their life comes out? We should warn them in grace and love and concern. This is, what, this is what Peter does. This is where you are. This is who you are. This is what's coming out of your life right now. These fruits, you are captive, you're ruled, you're crooked, you're possessing nothing, you're deceived. And, you're, and if you do not stop, you will continue all the way to hell. Our, our fourth point, if you want it, Be wise about fruit. Be wise about fruit. Yeah, we should have a generous spirit. We should believe in God's power, but we should say, but the fruit will show the genuineness of our conversion. The fruit will show. But that's not all I want you to see. I want you to see one more thing. And this is the best part. Number five, be amazed. Be amazed by repentance and faith. We should be wise. We should warn about faith. We should warn about judgment. But that's not all that you should do. Notice what Peter is not saying. He's not saying you're doomed. He's not just saying you never had a chance. You, you, I, you were unlikely anyway. You're without hope completely. But he does say, he does say, right? You're captive. You're ruled by sin. You're crooked before God. You're impoverished. You're deceived. You're going to hell. He does say that, but he does say something else as well. Did you see in verse 22? He says, repent, have faith. All of these things are yours. If you don't repent and seek for forgiveness. That's an incredible thing. That's an incredible thing. Doesn't that amaze you? This man is utterly lost. 
This man is absolutely condemned. This man is miserably doomed. I don't know about you, but the gall of bitterness, the bond of iniquity, that doesn't sound like a fun life to me. On my way to hell, that sounds like a miserable condition. You are doomed. This man has all of these things against him, and yet even he is offered repentance and faith. Be amazed by repentance and faith. Even you, someone who has nothing to offer offer to God spiritually, even you who are ruled by envy, even you who are currently going to hell, even you who are currently crooked before God, can repent and trust in God to forgive your sins. That's what he's saying in verse 22. Your condition, simply, is not outside the power of Jesus to save. Simon's condition isn't out side the power of Jesus to save. And that is incredibly good news. And that is how we should respond when we see God's sovereign grace. We should be constantly amazed. Wow! Everyone can be saved. Everyone can repent. Everyone can have faith. But will everyone do it? That is the question. Verse 24 leaves us zero information that Simon actually repented. Matter of fact, as Matt was pointing out, it shows us the exact opposite. He doesn't obey what Peter says provides an alternative way. If any if anything, this is him still trying to kind of work his way. If this this is him still trying to figure out God the old way, right? I clearly don't have any power, but maybe if you pray for me, you can get me there. That's not what Peter said, he says, you need to repent. You need to have faith. You need to ask God to forgive you. And he doesn't do that. He doesn't obey. Ultimately, this is, this is, this is where you see someone that confesses to be a believer really fail. They, they refuse to obey the word of God continually in their life. They refuse to repent. They refuse to seek forgiveness. But that, that doesn't weaken the power of of the gospel that is shown to us in this passage. No. It shows us you can be like that and God still offers you repentance and faith. What a marvelous thing. What a marvelous thing. And we should also remember, one side note, that Simon wasn't the worst person in this story. This whole entire story is bookended by the worst of the worst. Enemy number one. Chapter 8 verse 1, Saul. Chapter 9 verse 1, Saul still breathing out threats and murder. I'm going to spoil the ending for you. Saul was dramatically saved by God's grace. And he truly had nothing to offer to God spiritually. He had everything against him. And yet the power of Jesus dramatically changed his life and gave him grace to be an example to us of the power of Jesus to save. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for um, this message. We pray that it would work deeply in our hearts and continue to change the way we think about ourselves, about our condition, and about the grace that you offer to us in Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.